Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Tim Merritt. Good morning, Commandment Keepers. Are you all Commandment Keepers? Raise your hand if you are. Excellent. Well, this message is for you today. All right, but before we start, I want to invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And Lord, I just want to invite your spirit to be present. We ask also, Lord, that you'll be with those who cannot make it here this morning. For whatever reason, we just pray also, Lord, that they will receive a Sabbath blessing. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit will speak through me to the hearts of your people and that we will be moved by this message, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today, I want to look at the end in sight. The end in sight. Last week, we looked at Job and how he overcame the beasts in his life, and he overcame it by having the end in sight. So I want to look at Revelation chapter 13 this morning and give us a picture of the end in sight, of a soon-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. I had it on there um, yet to be fulfilled, but I believe it is a soon-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. Last week we looked at this great controversy over in, in the picture of Job. And we saw that Job lost his income. We saw that he lost his employees. We saw that he lost his superannuation. We saw that he lost his family members. And we saw how his friends ended up becoming his enemies. And even his wife also attacked him. Now, um, some of us here and some of us in the world can relate to some of those things, especially at the moment, can't we? But we certainly saw last week that what we see in Job is going to be a picture of our end time. And, and, and God revealed to Job that he was fighting something so much bigger than the enemies that he was faced with. That uh, he was fighting against a land beast and a sea beast that he had no control over. And we're going to have a look in Revelation chapter 13 about a land beast and a sea beast today. But in the end, Job was grateful for that experience. He was grateful that he was being able to stand up for God despite the attacks that were coming upon his life. You know, we live in a very interesting world today, don't we? I've already spoken to a few of you about that. You know, with this COVID-19 and all the rules that have been put in place and how our world has changed so rapidly... Replying to the World Health Leader, it was said, we cannot afford, we cannot afford to pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at the same rate and, rate and still breathe clean air. We cannot afford to eat and drink whatever we want and not expect to develop diabetes, hypertension, heart disease and cancer. 
we cannot afford to ever deepening iniquities and expected continued prosperity. We must choose. And in response to that, the world health leader said, COVID-19 is the challenge and opportunity of our time, reminding us that the only way forward is together. The only way forward is together, he says. And some of the world leaders are saying this around the world. The greatest threat we face now is not the virus itself. It is the lack of global solidarity and global leadership. Interesting words, aren't they, to us as Adventists? We cannot defeat this pandemic with a divided world. So we can see some of the things that are being spoken of are actually being spoken of in the Bible as well. So we can see that the end is in sight. The end is in sight. This morning I want us to have a look at Revelation chapter 13. But before we look at Revelation chapter 13, I want to give you a quick overview of how we can understand the book of Revelation. So there's some key ways that we can understand it. And initially in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 it tells us, that is, is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So in everything we read, we should see Jesus Christ. Yes. In Revelation 1 and verse 19, John is told to write the things which he has seen and the things which will take place after this. So it is a prophecy into the future. And we see it's a prophecy into the future right down to the coming of Jesus. We find the book of Revelation is steeped in sanctuary language. If you don't understand what happens in the earthly sanctuary and in turn in the heavenly sanctuary, then you will not understand the book of Revelation because it is steeped in sanctuary language. Even the picture of Jesus in in Revelation 1 verses 12 to 16 is Jesus inside the sanctuary. We find his face shone like the glory of God, like the sun. We find that in his hand is seven golden candlesticks. We find his feet like the altar outside, like burnished brass burning, like a fiery flame. And so we find this picture of Jesus overlaid in the sanctuary. And if we don't understand the sanctuary, we won't understand the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is also in a chiastic structure. Now, I think I've talked to you about chiastic structures before, but for those who haven't heard of that term, it's just a term that people used to write with. Uh, Just, uh, not a term, sorry, a way that people used to write. Today we use the thing of having an introduction, then we share the body of the work, and then we bring it all together in the conclusion. A chiastic structure is a little bit different because it marries the first part in with the last part and builds to a crescendo in the middle where the main part is actually in the middle. And I want to show you the chiastic structure of Revelation. Here it is. We begin with a prologue in chapter 1 and the epilogue in chapter 22. The next section we see the promises to the overcomers through the seven churches and in each church it talks about the promise to he who overcomes and its counterpart is in Revelation 21 where we see the fulfilment of those prophecies to those who do overcome 
We see God's work for humanity's salvation and his counterpart in the next section. And then in D, we see God's wrath mixed with mercy. Again, we see God's wrath mixed with mercy in chapters 15 through to 18. And then we see this middle section. Now, sometimes this middle section, different scholars will, will discuss about and whether it's exactly in the middle or not, but I believe this is how it is. They are all one. It begins in Revelation chapter 10 with what happening? With them eating the little scroll. And when they ate the little scroll, it was sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. And what were they told to do when it became bitter in the stomach? They were told to prophesy again. So we see that message going out in chapter 11. Chapter 12, we see the great controversy regarding that message. And we see it actually began in heaven, the same picture that Job was actually given. And we see that it began in heaven and it's going to continue right down to the end. Then we see the proclamation of the everlasting gospel in, in Revelation chapter 14. But here it centres, the whole book centres around these middle chapters. And we're going to have a look at one of those middle chapters this morning. Another way of understanding the book of Revelation is right through the book of Revelation, we actually have keys to help us to understand. And these keys are really important. At, uh, like we mentioned already in chapter 1 and verse 19, it tells John to write what he has seen currently and what he sees happening into the future. So it's what is happening now and what is happening in the future. That's a key to understanding the next two chapters of Revelation. At the end of chapter 3, we have this promise to the Laodicean church, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with the Father on his throne. What do we find happening in the next chapters after that key opens us up? We find the throne room of God. We find God sitting on the throne in chapter 4. We find chapter 5, we find Jesus sitting on the throne. And then we find how we overcome and sit on the throne. And in chapter 6 and verse 17, the question is asked, who will be able to stand? In chapter 7, we get the answer to that key that unlocks chapter 7. This group of people who will be able to stand, this 144,000 also described as a great multitude of people. The next key we find in, Daniel, I mean, Revelation 9, 21 and 22. In Revelation 9, 21 and 22, we see Revelation 8 and 9, the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are the seven warning messages going out to the earth. But we find in the last section of the trumpets, or the sixth trumpet there, we find that um, the trumpets haven't had their desired effect. People are still carrying on in their murderous and their sinful ways. And we find the answer is in chapter 10. The gospel message going out before we get to the seventh angel. We find in chapter 11, the sanctuary, the curtain is opened into the most holy place, revealing that we're now shifted to this part in the last days 
of Christ's work here on earth. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, and I want you to open your Bibles to this passage, because this is the key to understand Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to read verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And it says here, And the dragon was enraged with the woman. By the way, who's the dragon? Satan. And who's the woman? The church. So the dragon was enraged with the church and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the battle that we see appearing in Revelation chapter 13 has something to do with God's commandment-keeping people. It's going to be over the commandments. And we're going to see how that plays out over the next two weeks. You know, last week we looked at the many attacks upon Job. We looked at the attacks from the Sabaeans. We looked at the attacks from the Chaldeans. We looked at the attacks from fire coming down from heaven. We looked at the attacks of Job's friends who became his enemies. And we find that really the devil was behind them all. And this is what we're going to find in Revelation chapter 13. You know, um, when I left school, yeah, left year 12, one of, the, uh, one of my first jobs was as a laboratory um, assistant in a feed company, a stock feed company called Fidelity Feeds. And I was pretty stoked to get this job. Apparently there was a few people that went for it. I didn't think I was the most qualified, but I, uh, I got the job and I was very happy in the job. One of, my, uh, one of the main parts of my job was to actually go and collect a sample of the feed every single hour from the hopper and to take that back and check it for its moisture content and its protein content. I was to log that information down and if it was outside the guidelines, I then had to let the people who, who were doing the mixture know that it was out of whack. I really enjoyed that job, but six weeks into that job, I got called into the office. And the office staff said to me, listen, um, you've been going quite well here, things are working out well. We want you to actually do the afternoon shift week about. So I was to do the day shift, which I had been doing all this time. Then the next week I was to do the evening shift. Now there was only one problem with that, I was a commandment keeper at the time. And it involved Friday night. And I said, well, I won't work Friday night. There was one other guy doing the exact same job. He'd been doing the afternoon shift all the time and he was looking forward to the time when I would actually transition over to and, and, and work alongside swapping with him from day to evening shift. And I got together and I told this guy my dilemma and he said, well, if you're prepared to work the evening shift right up until Thursday and then come in on Friday on the day shift, I will do every Friday evening for you. I thought, oh great, there's my answer. And so things went on well for another two weeks. I got called into the office again 
And the office staff said, what if this guy is sick? Will you come in? I said, no, I won't. Unbeknownst to me, they actually rang the, uh, the pastor of the church that I attended and said, can, he, can we get special dispensation for this guy to come in on the Friday night? The pastor said, look, that's his decision. You'll have to leave it to him. And uh, after that, I was told that I had two weeks left. In the last week of my job there, one of the afternoon shift guys said, hey, we never initiated you. And the other guys around, yeah, yeah, we've never initiated you. You have to have an initiation process. And I go, what's this initiation process? Well, what they used to do to new employees, they used to actually sew them into two feed bags. They'd sew two feed bags together, they'd sew them in, put them on a pallet and uh, drive them around the forklift, around the factory, spray spray them with the uh, fire hose and just put a bit of terror into them. And I decided I was going to, um, I only had a week and a half left and I could get out of this happening to me. And so one of my friends, he said, tonight's the night. I said, what? Tonight's the night, is it? I had a little pocket knife tucked in my pocket just in case so I could cut myself out. And I said, no, I'm not going to get caught. And this friend of mine here at the factory, he sort of alerted me to it, so I was ready. And, you know, there was only, there was only two doors into the laboratory area. One of the doors went in from the front area, which you can't access the back from that, and then there was the back area one. And that was my only access out to get my feed to uh, check it every hour. And I knew I had to do this, and uh, I was peeking out the window, and I could see a couple of guys hanging around, and I thought, wow, what am I going to do? Well, there were some windows on the other side and I actually snuck out one of the windows and went down and collected the feed and come back in. And uh, one of the guys saw me just as I was climbing back into the window and they came rushing around and I quickly locked the window and they were stuck outside. (sighs) I defeated them. I was pretty happy. The next hour came. I couldn't see them around. And this mate came up to me and he said, they're right, they're gone, They're, they're busy doing other things. And just for safety, I thought I'm going to head out the window again and keep the laboratory locked. And I did that. And then six guys came at me. And guess who I saw in the distance away from those six guys? That seventh guy was my friend. He had actually organised this. (laughs) They sewed me into the bags, into the two bags, and they drove me around and sprayed me with a fire hose. And you know... As much as we can have a laugh of that, and, and, and that can be my focus, but really, they weren't the ones that are attacking me. It was actually management that was making me lose my job. And I was losing my job because I wanted to keep the commandments of God. You know, we have attacks on us every single day, and sometimes we can lose focus on the attacks and lose the end goal. In Revelation chapter 13, we have the activities of the devil. And I love the fact that in amongst the activities of the devil in verse 8, where do we see? We see the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. We see Jesus right here with us. So let's keep that in mind as we go through Revelation 13. 
But let's have a look at the first two verses. Revelation 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Here we get a picture of this beast. And the picture of this beast that we're given reminds us of Daniel 7, doesn't it? It reminds us of beasts that were in Daniel 7 because this beast actually has what? It has feet like that of a bear. Oh, sorry, like that, yeah, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, but it had feet like that of a bear and its mouth like that of a lion. So here, we're now looking back at the past, at this new beast that has resemblance or attributes of this old beast. These old beasts, plural, I should say. But we find that the devil is the one who gives us the power, gives it the power. We find also that the devil is described as what? A beast with seven heads and ten horns. But also we find another description in Revelation 17 which matches Revelation 13. Let's have a look at Revelation 17 and verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. Who is this entity? Well, let's have a look at Revelation 13, verses 3 to 7. I saw one of its heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and its deadly wound was healed. So in other words, this, this entity here is has had a deadly wound and his wound has been healed. And the whole world marvelled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things of blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Notice that, that's really key to understanding this beast. Then he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted for him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And he was given authority over him and over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Here we find this beast here that's described is one that was in power beforehand for 42 months. We find that it is blaspheming God. We find that it is also persecuting God's people, which is the exact same description of the little horn in Daniel chapter 7. Isn't it? The time period matches. The blaspheming matches. The persecuting God's people matches. It's now saying that his wound is going to be healed 
and the whole world will wonder and marvel after the beast. What is all this about? All this is actually about worship. Here in verse 4, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast. So we notice it's about worship. Verse 8 also, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That's a little bit scary, isn't it? All who dwell on the earth will worship him. I'm glad the next part of that verse is still there, except those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. So here we find that in the end time there's going to be this blasphemous power that's going to try and get us to worship. And the description here given in verse 5 and 6 that he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies actually reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians. And I want us to go back to 2 Thessalonians. Keep your finger in Revelation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 3 and then verse 4. Paul here is talking to the Thessalonians about the coming of Jesus. The the, uh, Thessalonians had got a little bit discouraged. Some of their friends had passed away. And they were wondering when Jesus' coming was. Paul didn't want them to be deceived, so he said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless there is a falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And notice what he does. Who opposes and exalts himself above above all that is called God, all that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. So Paul is telling us before Jesus can come, there has to be a falling away and the man of sin has to be revealed and this is this one who actually blasphemes God, who puts himself in the place of God, making out that he is God in the temple of God. I want us to notice something about this woman that's riding this beast that's described in Revelation chapter 17. So go back over to Revelation, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. I want us to read verses 3 and 4. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Notice verse five, four. Sorry, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, and having, her hand, and having in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and of the filthiness of her fornication. So here we find the woman or, or, or this beast that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 13, also described here, but we've described her here as having certain colours. Who did we say this beast was? This beast is the Roman papal church that persecuted God's people for 42 months. The same time period as a time, times and half a time in in Daniel chapter 7. Here we find that she has come back and that she's arrayed in these colours. 
I took some pictures off the internet of the colours. Notice the colours there? What are the colours? Scarlet, purple and gold. We find that this is all about worship. Did you ever think that there's a colour missing here? Blue. Someone said blue. I want us to have a look at the way the priests were adorned back in the time of the Israelites. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 31. Here it tells us, talking about the priestly garments, it says, You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Verse 33 tells us, And upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. Let's also notice verse 36. And you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of the signet, holiness to the Lord. Have you ever thought what the blue represents here? The blue represents God's commandments. Let's come back to Numbers, or let's go over to Numbers, I should say. Numbers chapter 15 Numbers chapter 15. Having a bit of a Bible study here more than the sermon, aren't we? Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. Numbers 15, verses 38 and 39. It says there, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. To put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, and you shall have the tassel, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, that you may not follow the harlotry which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined to. So here the blue was to remind them of the commandments of God, to keep them and do them so we don't follow the harlotry. The same word that is described in Revelation 17 as that woman, she is a harlot. You know what I find very interesting is in Exodus chapter 24 we find in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 9 it says Then Moses went up also, Aaron, Nabad, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Here God is seen as standing on what? Blue sapphire stone. What, were, what did he say he was going to do after that? Let's have a look in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law 
and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. You know, I believe there's enough evidence here to say that the commandments were actually on blue sapphire stone. And the blue was to remind the children of Israel to keep the commandments of God. And so the blue on the garments of the priests was very, very important. But here we find that this woman, this, this harlot woman, has no blue. Remember, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17... We find the devil going out to attack the woman and the rest of her offspring. Who are who? Commandment-keeping people. Commandment-keeping people. Here we have a clue that what this entity is up to, this entity is to stop us from keeping the commandments of God. In Revelation 19 and verse... Sorry, Revelation 11 and verse 19, we see at the end of time we see that curtain opened up. And what do we see? We see the Ark of the Covenant. Just before God comes again, we're going to get a picture into the Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. On top of that covenant is the mercy seat. Here, when we get a picture of this Ark of the Covenant, we get a picture of God's mercy for us who have not always kept his commandments. We get this picture of justice and mercy mingled together. We also get a picture that the commandments are still just as important as they were when Jesus died on the cross. Because what happened when Jesus died on the cross according to Matthew 27 verse 51? We have the curtain in the temple torn open. What was revealed? The Ark of the Covenant. Revealing that God is a covenanted person who keeps his covenant with us. And he has kept his side of the, of, of the, of the covenant. He has been loyal to us and here right at the end of time we see Jesus revealing that he is still going to be loyal to us when he comes to return to take us home to be with him his commandment keeping people you know a lot of people don't realise but God's throne is actually the sanctuary in heaven We sometimes see God's throne as a big seat, a big golden seat arrayed in all its glory, but really it's the actual sanctuary in heaven. The picture Isaiah saw of God, he saw him sitting on his throne, but the robe of his filled the temple. So we see here that his throne is the temple. We find in Revelation 13 verses 7 and 8 that this war is over worship. And the question is, who is able to make war with him? The only one who was able to make war with him was the only one who kept the commandments perfectly. And that is the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. And he offers you and I that righteousness which he 
achieved here on this earth. Job saw this great controversy between what was happening with him. He saw that he was just a small picture in the big picture. This cosmic battle involves the whole of the universe. Who is able to make war with him? Only Jesus. Remember the world leaders are saying all around the world that the greatest threat we face now is not the virus itself. It's the lack of global solidarity, of global leadership. And we cannot defeat this pandemic with a divided world. People all around the world are saying we need one world leader. And there's going to be different entities from all around the world supporting that world leader. And what we're seeing in COVID-19 is just a picture of how things can come to an end so quickly. This is actually being used to enforce worship. The wounded head of the beast is the Roman Papal Church. And in the end, it will sit on many people's nations, kingdoms, all to enforce worship. The message I've been trying to relay in the last couple of weeks is that if we can't defeat the beast in our own life now, when it comes to defeat this beast, we're not going to be able to do it. We need to make decisions today of who we will worship. With my job back there when I left school, I really loved that job. And I was really tempted to give up on my beliefs. I really wasn't following God real well at the time, but I did know the importance of staying true to God's word. And it's interesting, looking back now, I see that God has led me on a completely different path to what I had in my own mind. And by trusting him and putting him first, things have worked out a lot better. So the question I want to leave us with this morning is, who will you worship? message was made available by the Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church. When my will becomes enthroned in your love When all
When I Look Into Your Holiness and Such Love by Marilla Ness. Up next, from Carly Fletcher's album Eternity Together, this is Choose Life. Each new day, God gives you a choice to make, blessing or cursing, life or death. It's in your hands The choice is yours to make So what will you choose today? Therefore choose life That you and your descendants may live Will you love the Lord your God And obey His voice? is your life and the length of your days so what will you choose will you choose life life or death blessing or cursing the choice is in your hands And so this day, I have a choice to make, blessing or cursing, life or death, how will I live? The choice is mine to make, I choose Jesus Christ and His way. Choose life that me and my descendants may live. I will love the Lord my God and obey His voice. 
So what will you choose? Will you choose life? Therefore choose life That you and your descendants may live Will you love the Lord your God and obey His voice? For God is your life And the length of your days So what will you choose? Will you choose life God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. Today's story is entitled, Three Warm Friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this story is based on Daniel chapters 1, 2, and 3. While our birth names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, soon after we arrived here in Babylon as captives from Judah, the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, gave us Babylonian names. I was given the Babylonian name Shadrach, while my friends, Mishael and Azariah, were to be known as Meshach and Abednego. Our country has been in turmoil for hundreds of years. No sooner had a good king died than an evil king took his place. It seemed that most of the people did not have the courage to stand for God. Instead, they just followed whatever the king did. How it must have pained God's great heart of love, for he had done so much for our nation, right from the time of our deliverance from slavery in Egypt and down through many hundreds of years. He had given us what our forefathers knew as the promised land, the land promised to our ancestor Abraham when God entered into a covenant with him and with his son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob. After many years of warning of approaching disasters for our nation, the time finally came when the Babylonian hordes devastated our land and our beautiful city, Jerusalem, the place where God said he would meet with his people. They left it in utter ruin. Solomon's majestic temple, a building like no other on earth, was reduced to a pile of rubble. Death and devastation were everywhere, and those of us who were left were marched like so many animals, chained to each other on the long trek to Babylon to be reduced to slave-like status again. However, my friends and I 
had another close friend, Daniel, who was renamed Belteshazzar. He became a trusted governor in Babylon and later in Medo-Persia due to God's leading. We were chosen to serve the king's palace. We first had to go through training for royal duties, learn their language and customs, and to generally fit ourselves to keep the court of King Nebuchadnezzar operating smoothly. As part of our training, we were provided food from the king's table, a rare privilege, we were told. However, it was not food we were used to. It was far too rich a diet. In any case, we were sure it had been offered to their gods before being eaten, and that is not something we would be a part of. So after persuading Ashpenaz to give us some simple plant-based food to eat and water to drink, and suggesting he test us in 10 days' time, he finally agreed. At the end of 10 days, we were better in all respects than were the other young men captured from Judah who had accepted the king's diet. The years of our captivity were filled with duties at the king's court and so went quickly in some respects, but very slowly when we realised that the prophets had said that the captivity would last for 70 years. 70 years! That was a lifetime for the people of our day. Who would there be of those who had left Jerusalem still alive to return there 70 years later? Not very many, we suspected. Often we felt like joining those of our countrymen who hung their harps in the willows by the river of Babylon and mourned for Zion, which would never be the same again. One day, some years into our captivity, we were told of a decree by King Nebuchadnezzar that a gigantic image coated with gold was to be erected on the plain of Jura. All who could attend were to be present and bow down to worship the image when the music sounded. This included all the courtiers of which we were three, as the king had declared that certain office holders must go to Jura. Our mutual friend Daniel was elsewhere in the empire at the time, so did not attend. Never had we done such a thing in our young lives in Jerusalem, where the worship of the true God was centred, and we had no intention to change now, even though we were not a free people who could do as we pleased. As part of the king's decree, the harshest penalty for anyone disobeying his order to bow down to the music when it sounded was that they would be thrown into an especially constructed furnace, as hot inside as a brick-making furnace. Anyone thrown into such a furnace would soon be reduced to ashes. However, that still did not worry us. We determined to have only the great Creator as our God, come what may. When the day came for the public show of obedience to the King, the people assembled there were told when to stand. At a sign from the King's deputy, the music struck a loud chord, signalling that everyone must drop to their knees. Well, they did, except the three of us. We soon were spotted, as it was not difficult to see three people standing when everyone else had bowed down to the ground. Immediately, some of the king's courtiers hastened to where King Nebuchadnezzar sat on his throne, telling them that three of the Jewish captives 
whom the king had highly favoured by appointing them governors of the province of Babylon, had refused to bow down to the golden image. The king was furious at this defiance of his authority. Yet because of the approval of our work for him, he gave us another opportunity to show our loyalty by bowing down to the massive golden image, glistening brightly in the noonday sun. He told us that this time we must bow down, otherwise we would surely be thrown into the furnace where even a brick would barely survive. We respectfully advised the king that we had confidence in our God. He would protect us. Even if he did not, then we would certainly not bow down to the image that the king had set up. This time, the blood vessels of Nebuchadnezzar's neck nearly burst he was so angry, and he straightway ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter, and we must be thrown into the furnace. It was so hot that the mighty men of war, who had been told to cast us into the fire, perished from the heat. I cannot tell you what was going through our minds as we were roughly picked up and thrown into the furnace, though. Then something amazing happened. We did not feel any heat at all. In fact, all around us, it felt just the same as in our personal rooms in the palace. When we grew accustomed to the flames, we saw someone else in the furnace with us. Yes, it was the Son of God who had come down from heaven to cancel the heat of the furnace. The king's plan to destroy us had failed. The Son of God spoke with us, assuring us of his love for us and his promise to always be with us. The next thing we heard was King Nebuchadnezzar calling out in a panic-stricken voice, pleading with us to come quickly out of the furnace. You servants of the Most High God! All the king's men came to see the miracle of three men who had not been affected by the fire in the slightest. They could not smell the fire on our clothes, neither were they singed, nor was our hair. Even our skin was in a perfectly healthy condition. Now the king was a changed man. He immediately issued another decree saying that if anyone spoke against our God, they would be cut into pieces and their houses burnt to the ground. Of course, we did not agree with that, but we could see that it was Nebuchadnezzar's way of acknowledging how great is our God. He had power over the most powerful king on earth in our time. After we had gone back to our quarters in the palace, we discussed until well into the night what had happened that day. We all came to the same conclusion, that God is a God of love and kindness. He doesn't force us to obey Him. We have learnt that giving our love and loyalty to Him is the best thing to do in every way. For not only does it give us a sense of oneness with Him, but it is so very reassuring that He has the power to deliver us from out of trouble if He chooses to do so. We are glad that we chose to serve God in our childhood and youth. We are even more determined to serve, honour and love Him for the rest of our lives, whether these are short or long. I hope you too 
when you hear of our experience as captives in Babylon, far from our homeland, and that once beautiful city of Jerusalem, the place of God's choosing, set on a high plateau in the land of God's promise. I have a a short quiz for you now. Daniel's three friends had two sets of names. What were their birth names? What were their names given to them at Babylon? Why did the Babylonians invade Judah and destroy Jerusalem and the temple? All the people who were captured were now slaves. Had their ancestors ever been slaves before? What was made that the people had to bow down to? And did King Nebuchadnezzar change his attitude when the three friends were not destroyed in the furnace. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.